0: Today's episode is brought to you by Jane Wong's Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City, a debut memoir about family, food, girlhood, resistance, and growing up in a Chinese-American restaurant on the Jersey Shore, says Sally Wen Mao. Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City takes a father's addiction to the prismatic casinos of Atlantic City and places it against a mother's fierce, unsparing devotion, and a daughter's struggle to make sense of loss. I love the tenderness and ferocity of her prose, unsentimental and wrenching, that refuses easy triumph in its immigrant story and isn't afraid of uncovering both beauty and brutality. Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City is, at heart, a love story between Wong and her mother, Wong, and herself. Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City is out on May 16th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Even though today's conversation is ostensibly about Melanie Ray Tone's new novel, it really is a conversation that is deeply relevant for writers of any genre, both because Tone's approach to language and story emerges from a poetics a relationship to language that is non-connotative pre-verbal musical and also because her ideas regarding the relation of memory to the imagination extend to questions of personal experience and autobiography in relation to the people or other creatures we create and imagine on the page whether quote-unquote real beings or made-up ones. As If Fire Could Hide Us is described as a love song in three movements. And this description raises questions of what it means to write from love or toward love and how doing so might change a story or the syntax of a sentence or line and what the implications are of being attentive to another whether another human someone we love or someone we fear someone we've harmed or someone we've been harmed by or to an animal or a plant or a rock or to the wind what being attentive to what tone calls the ethics of perception might do to point of view or to character or to plot You're going to soon experience firsthand just how generous and attentive and loving Melanie is to every being in her stories, why she is, and to what end. And she's been equally generous to supporters and future supporters of Between the Covers. As I say at the beginning of every episode, every listener supporter of the show gets The resource-rich email with each episode, an email that contains what I discovered as part of my preparation for the show and suggestions of what to check out once you've finished listening. That's true today, also, as usual, but because we talk about Melanie's approach to teaching writing, to how to teach writing, she has also given us two of her teaching documents, one called Memory and Adventure and the other, The Gospel of Grief and Grace and Gratitude, as well as an extensive bibliography of some of the most important books for her. As if that were not enough, for the Bonus Audio Archive, she contributes a craft talk. Most of the Bonus Audio Archive consists of readings, really dynamic readings by past guests, Natalie Diaz reading Borges, Alice Oswald reading from the Book of Job, Forrest Gander reading a collaboration with a lichen scientist, Kava Akbar reading a poem he loves that nevertheless didn't fit in his last book, in praise of the laughing worm. Occasionally there are other things, perhaps most notably the long-form interviews with translators, and more uncommonly craft talks from Marlon James's the nine and a half rules of seduction to Jeannie Venasco's how to write memorable lines to today's contribution by Melanie Ray Tone of her talk, the ethics of perception to find out about all the possible benefits of joining the, between the covers community and how to subscribe to the bonus audio archive. You can check it all out. All of this and more at Patreon.com slash Between the Covers. And now, for today's episode with Melanie Ray Tone.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
2: I think
0: stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories, and if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story.
1: had no
2: idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Melanie Ray Tone, studied English at the University of Michigan and then pursued an M.A. in creative writing from Boston University. In the 90s, Granta named her one of the 20 best young American novelists, with her books in that decade, including the two novels, Meteors in August and Iona Moon, and her story collections Girls in the Grass and First Body, the latter of which contains her most anthologized and taught story, Christmas Jamaica Plain, originally published in Granta's Best of Young American Novelists issue. Her works have appeared multiple times in Best American Short Stories, multiple times in the Pushcart Prize anthology, They've won an O. Henry Prize and appeared everywhere from plowshares to conjunctions. Her 2001 novel, Sweethearts, which received starred reviews from Kirkus, Booklist, and Publishers Weekly, was described by the New York Times as follows In this novel, as in the most bracing of her short stories, tone gives voice to the inarticulate, making vivid the yearning of those left out in the cold through the wildness and longing of her characters she turns what could be a tale of grim endurance into a cry against forgetting in 2011 graywolf released her new and selected stories called in this light and since then her book-length work including the voice of the river and silence and song Among others, has become more formally unconventional, if also retaining a distinct thematic through line of concerns. In fact, what Carol Meso says about The Voice of the River, I think is true about both the work that precedes it and what has come to us since. Quote The Voice of the River is a beautifully written, deeply inclusive, and profoundly spiritual work of art. I am moved by its great generosity above all and its wisdom. Melanie Raytone has taught at Emerson College, the University of Massachusetts, Syracuse University, Ohio State University, and most significantly at the University of Utah, where she is Professor Emeritus and where she has taught in both the creative writing and environmental humanities programs. She has twice been a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. She's a winner of the Whiting Award, a Lannan Foundation residency, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. And she's here today to talk about her latest book, As If Fire Could Hide Us, from Fiction Collective 2 and the University of Alabama Press. Mary Pinard says, As If Fire Could Hide Us embodies a search or unconditional love as a healing force in a world that fractures and is fractured. These fictions test and extend the boundaries of loss and repair, darkness and beauty. And Paisley Rectal adds, As If Fire Could Hide Us, asks its readers, What responsibility do we have to each other when, whether by accident or design, we commit great harm. Can we love strangers with the same depth as we love our family members and ourselves? And if so, what risks attend that love? As If Fire Could Hide Us is a work of great and radical empathy, a work of moral philosophy, a work of love. Welcome to Between the Covers, Melanie Ray
2: Hi, David. Thank you for that introduction.
0: So your new book is subtitled A Love Song in Three Movements that you've described to me by email as three thematically intertwined movements that emerged from different time periods, each with its own distinct genesis. I want to talk about this, the story behind each movement's origins why and how you chose to place them together, what you mean by a love song and by a movement. But first, I wanted to start with the first movement called Aurelia and Hiding, and what we encounter as we begin. The book opens like a poem or a fairy tale poem with white space written in lines, not sentences, but then moves into an italicized address to Aurelia, staying in lines, but moving from the first person to the second person. And then we end up in the mother's point of view in third person, the prose now in sentences, but periodically italicized phrases in lines will separate two paragraphs all of this happens within the first four pages and remarkably without being disorienting you you said before i don't advocate formal play for its own sake but as a means of intensification that slows perception and ignites ethical inquiry this attention this insane joy is the genesis the heart the hot core and dark energy of story. And I feel like this this opening is a great example of this. I feel right away both oriented and connected to voice and also in a highly experimental space. And I suspect it's the voice that keeps us tethered, engaged, connected, while formally everything shifts shape. But I'd love to hear both about your own relationship to the reader in relation to experiment and engagement, both acknowledging that these are often put in opposition, experiment and engagement, but also something that I, that opposition being something that I don't think really stands up to scrutiny.
2: What an amazing question. <laughs> in some ways, I don't even think of it as experimentation. It's what emerges from the material. And so when I first started composing Aurelia in Hiding, I never have a vision of the whole project when I start something. It's always a process of discovery. And this was a, a particularly long process of discovery. I conceived of the story in 2014, and the first ideas about the story were not about how I would tell it. The the ideas came from, um, I guess I'm going back to your Genesis question here now, that it came from a story I had heard about a young girl who had been assaulted and her throat had been slit, actually. And they found her days later, miraculously alive and obviously you know the assailant had not expected her to survive that and i'm always really curious about who people will be afterward you know it's not it's not the assault that's so interesting as it is who was the person before And who is that person afterward? And I think of someone who goes through a very, very long recovery. You know, someone who's got had their throat slit obviously is going to be in the hospital for months and months and months, probably, and probably not able to speak for a long time. I I should mention the girl in my story does not have her throat slit, (laughs) you know, that this was not the story that came to be, but that more that question of who you are before and who you are afterward. And the voice that originally came to me was that opening voice that you describe as a kind of fairy tale. I love that description. That's a beautiful description of it. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think that's really accurate. And I was stuck on that voice for a long time because shortly after I conceived of the story, I became very ill and could not work on it for for years, actually. And so it was a story that came to me in different pieces. And I had I had a box where I kept scraps of paper with notes for the story, and they came from all different points of view of not just Aurelia, but a voice speaking to her, and that second person voice you describe that comes very quickly, and that is also italicized and lineated, that voice I think of as the angelic, and I don't mean that in a, in a religious way. I mean it as a kind of presence hovering above her like herself, the presence of herself leaving herself and watching herself and protecting herself, but also the voice of the the person who has recovered, the person who has survived that extreme experience and can tell the child who's left in the forest about how she gets out of this. So all of that happens in three pages, right? (laughs) It's
0: it's, It's really miraculous, I think, the opening to this book. I think you must have an attraction to the number three, as this book has three movements. You have an epigraph to your book, Silence and Song. That's an unattributed Hasidic teaching that goes. There are three ascending levels of how one mourns, with tears, that is the lowest, with silence, that is higher, and with song, that is the highest. And when we first long ago now decided to talk together for the show, you sent me this amazing package of your back catalog, both well-known books and lesser-known chapbooks, but you also provided me a bird's-eye view of your career, with you organizing your life as a writer into three phases. And I wondered if you if you could touch upon, not necessarily the specific books, but the qualities of those three phases for you in light of this question around form and experiment and also voice and engagement.
2: I think I'll start in the middle with that, with the movement from... Girls in the Grass and Meteors in August to Iona Moon, which was my third book. And I didn't know that Iona Moon was going to be a novel when I first started out. It was actually two of the Iona Moon stories are included in Girls in the Grass. And so I was already starting to work on that. But I've come to think of movements in my writing as the convergence of rupture and rapture. And what happened while I was working on Iona Moon, I had a really profound rupture. And that was a physical rupture, which and and also a neurological rupture, which was, I had Graves disease, which is an autoimmune disease, which causes hyperthyroidism and hypermetabolic state. And I wasn't diagnosed for over a year, maybe a year and a half. And that causes physically heart palpitations, heart racing, sweating, um, hyper anxiety. I think of it as being in a, um, having an anxiety attack for a year and a half, that sense of your body being out of control. But what was happening neurologically during that time was also out of control. And my neural networks, were firing at this extraordinary pace. So I was getting an incredible amount of heightened sensory information and heightened memory and heightened connection between events. And as I was working, I I was, I was crazy. Basically, I was crazy. (laughs) Um, And I also think of it as being on on an LST journey for a year and a half, you know, that it was really unstoppable. It was a bombardment. But I realized during that time, like I was writing hundreds and hundreds of pages in my own notebooks, because I was just having these hyper sensations. And I realized that if I had that kind of experience, everyone did. Not all the time, obviously, but but everyone had access to that kind of neurological explosion where everything becomes heightened, everything becomes connected. And so my process really changed while I was working on Iona Moon. And that process was, you know, suddenly I was composing... Hundreds of pages for every person in my book, every cow in my book, <laughs> every potato in my book.
0: Every potato.
2: <laughs> my mom said to me, how do you know so much about potatoes? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's wonderful. And Do you want to speak about the way things have changed, say, since Sweethearts 20 years ago and what we're reading now?
2: Wheat hearts was 20 years ago. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, you know, one of the things is I've begun to use the page more, both as um, a visual cue and as an oral cue so that I'm expecting um I'm expecting the page to have an effect. So I was down at Brigham Young University recently, talking with a group of of students, and they they asked me about the use of the colon in the Seventh Man, which I thought was kind of amazing. To you know, why are we focusing on the colon? And <laughs> and uh, and I turned it back on them. I said, so um, before I answer that, as as the writer. Of, authorial voice, you tell me, you know, what your response to that was. And one of them said, well, it invited me to read more as if I were reading poetry. And I thought, well, what does that mean, you know, to read more like poetry? And I think one thing is it slows the reader down and also says, it's okay if you need to read this again. And I think also the colon suggests, you know, that there's, there's something unsaid. There's something in that space between the colon and then what looks like the next stanza, really. Um, and another student said, well, you know, I, I realized that as I read, I was going deeper and deeper and deeper into the speaker's consciousness, that was marvelous. Yeah. What a great idea that is. And a third student said, I had the sense that the colon means that the things on both sides of the colon are equal. And I should say this this piece, the seventh man, has commas and colons. That's it. Um, and so on either side of a colon, there is something equal, is what the student said. Mm. And I started to realize that there was this egalitarian vision of everyone in the piece, um, that it wasn't, that there was no stasis, there was no single point of view, that it kept moving and moving through one portrayal after another.
0: Well, I'll just mention to listeners who haven't read the new book that the seventh man, which we're discussing this this moment, is the second movement of of the book we're discussing today. But let's hear the opening to the first movement, Aurelia in Hiding, uh, so people can hear this shift between three voices, uh, three points of view.
2: Excellent. I remember birds, or the shadows of birds, hundreds of hearts trembling through my body, rain, rivering my skin damp earth and sweet decay piercing cold pellets of hail i slept or died and when i returned stars swirled high between black branches i was not afraid i did not imagine leaving the forest. Aurelia, didn't you always love the dark, the dirt, diving down, staying under, burying yourself deep in a ditch, leaves or snow, the ravine, a culvert, digging a hole in the vacant lot, mud and moss, so little air, you could die here. Mother at the lab that night, the night forever in question. She calls three times, six, eleven thirty. Eat your dinner, go to bed. I'll be home soon. Aurelia does eat, cornflakes with chocolate chips and raisins, all soaked in milk. A soft, sweet mash topped with petals of pansies petals of roses, forbidden flowers, a deliciousness she becomes, 12 years old, Aurelia Kateri, body in bloom, so she imagines. In truth, she's undergrown, a thin flicker of electricity, stronger than anyone would guess, Aurelia, the mystery of matter converting to energy, Four feet, nine inches tall, 71 pounds. Absent from school, 63 days this year. Troublemaker, truant, feral daughter of delinquent parents. The father, 227 miles from home, so many nights gone, so long under. Nick Kateri. Saviour, salvager, deep diver dredging up sunken boats, planes crashed into lakes, flying cars plunged off bridges. Who to blame? Numbers now seem important. His one, his only. Never can her father bring Aurelia to mind without seeing the other. The twin mourn, shrunken and mummified. No blood in the brain, the lungs, the fingers. Noel. as fire, she breathes. Becomes a tiny heap of ash. Charred slivers of bone that won't burn. She could be anything now. Songs deep in the woods. The owl at night. Coyote, crow, thrush, warbler.
0: We've been listening to Melanie Ray Tone read from her latest book, As If Fire Could Hide Us. I wanted to spend some time with polyvocality vocality and what it achieves, because the way you use it, I think, has many implications. Past between the covers, guest, the writer Lance Olson, once described the point of view in your novel, The Voice of the River, as oceanic consciousness, a term that he's used elsewhere to also describe Virginia Woolf. And you said, in response to this term applied to your work, he means the perceiving consciousness embraces all living things. This sensing presence swirls around a person, a bird. A bear, trillium blooming in dark woods, snow, stones, pines singing, moving closer and closer, loving that being tenderly, finally merging with another sensibility, perceiving and knowing as one before swirling out again to embrace and love another. And that reminds me, just as an interjection, that reminds me to you describing that second-person voice as the angelic voice. It seems somehow connected. In that interview, you also quote from Jim Corbett's Goat Walking, this line, Love doesn't split into loving and being loved. The love of God is God's love. Beyond that, the highest wisdom is silence. But... Thinking of Lance's term for you, oceanic consciousness, Lance has a question for you where he asks you about another way he likes to describe your work. And I have no idea if this other way that he proposes is connected to oceanic consciousness for you or not. But, but here's Lance's question.
1: Well, hi, David, and thank you for all the incredible work you've been doing over the years. Melanie and I are in total agreement that you really are the best interviewer out there. The The research you do, the delicate and careful uh, readings that you do, just amazing and best questions ever. And Melanie, Poet Laureate of the Heart, Thank you for all the work that you've been doing over the years. We've taught each other so, so much. So let's see. My question really goes back to the walks that we've been taking lately as as if fire could hide us came to fruition. And it revolves around us trying to get a way to think about your philosophy these days and i'd love to hear you talk more about the term i came up with which is pantheistic physics yes and i i i won't take any more time um setting things up rather just take that any any direction you'd like perhaps seeing how it grows from a a, a novel like sweethearts where it's definitely present into as if fire could hide us thanks you guys
2: Thank you for that question Lance. Um I didn't know th- I I didn't know that we would be conversing today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really love the idea of oceanic consciousness um and the way that that is expansively broad and expansively deep and I think that was really so much a part of uh the voice of the river of moving between different kinds of you know not even ways that we normally think of point of view but um, I think more of co-perception in that novel that we're traveling with the dog who's who's smelling the other creatures and those uh, and the owl is hearing you know the mouse (laughs) tunneling under snow so there's There's this sense of movement between sensibilities that's really fluid. And I think that what comes into it with this idea of pantheistic physics is something that embraces more of the, the convergence of the spiritual with the actual scientific. And so I think as if fire could hide us engages with those two things much more passionately, much more overtly than really anything I've composed before. And I think that that, especially the Aurelia in hiding section, but but the other movements as well, take on questions of spirituality in conversation with questions of science. So there isn't really any separation between those two. And I think that's really become my vision now.
0: Well, I think you've partially answered my next question, but I really like Lance's choice of pantheistic also because one way I think polyvocality manifests in your work is in evoking an ecological consciousness, which you've just described really well about the voice of the river, or if not an ecological consciousness, a sense that the story is being made not just by humans, Even in the opening four pages that we heard, where we switch between first, second, and third person, we also, from the first words, I remember birds, or the shadow of birds, hundreds of hearts trembling through my body. You have a sense that the story is moving forward by the hearts of these birds, within the eye of the narrator. And it made me think of a recent conversation I was watching between the poet Alice Oswald and the playwright Katie Mitchell, where Mitchell begins by talking about how she's wanting to put on a performance of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, but from the perspective of the trees. And they spend much of their time together sort of imagining and puzzling out how that might happen. Also, of course, acknowledging that it's happening for a human audience. So that puts certain constraints on what they might imagine. And at one point, Oswald says that she thinks many of the characters in the play already talk like trees, their speech circling back on itself. And only a couple of them are moving forward with a linearity of more of a tree-felling nature. And then she says, I think humans contain inside them a vegetable language, a mineral language, an animal language. And poetry in particular can evoke these other languages. But I wondered if you could speak to how there is, or if there is an ethos or politic to your including animals and birds so ubiquitously in your work, or whether it is rather something you simply discover yourself doing in the process of writing.
2: First, I wanna say that Alice Oswald quotation is just beautiful. That is so gorgeous. I love that. Um, It really has become an ethos. We're part of something we're not the center of it. And I often taught uh, a class with the subtitle, The Ethics of Perception, The Politics of Attention, and the Responsibilities of Representation. And so I when I think of those terms separately, when I think of the ethics of perception, I think we really have a choice about literally how we perceive the world. Do we perceive these other beings as being part of our being, or do we perceive them as being somehow separate? And I think for me, everything is relational. Um, everything is interdependent. And Thich Han talks about this really beautifully um, and really simply in the heart of understanding. He talks about a piece of paper and how a piece of paper is connected to everything in the cosmos. So you can't have a piece of paper without having a tree, without having a logger to cut the tree down, without having wheat to feed, to make bread to feed the logger, um, without clouds to bring the rain, without the soil. And you can take anything, however simple it is, and expand it out to include the entire cosmos. And I think that that's what I've been wanting to do in my work more and more is make it increasingly expansive so that um, that ethics of perception has to extend to other beings as they might perceive everything else, not just how they might move back and forth between the human beings, but how they move between one another. So in Aurelia and hiding. There are references to the mycelium. And that's that underground network, the underground fungal network that is communicating between trees. And how does that correspond to how human relationships work or how animal relationships or cellular or even atomic relationships?
0: Mm. That's wonderful. We have another Set of questions for you from the poet Paisley Rectal.
2: Hey, Melanie, it's Paisley. Two questions which I think are related. The first is, what is it about poetry, specifically lyric poetry, that works so well with the ecological concerns of this novel? The second question is, I can't think of another writer that has changed her voice so much over the course of her career. Uh, And poetry is one of those things that has really changed your writing, Um, your novels, and your essays are now erupting with lyricism and all sorts of levels. So can you talk a little bit about that evolution and what it means to turn to poetry after spending all your life as a fiction writer? Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Paisley. It's nice to hear you. I think those questions are connected. I think what you ask about lyric poetry and how that might facilitate the kinds of ecological concerns that I have. I think that just how things look on the page are signals to the reader. And in lyric poetry, or really many different kinds of poetry, there is that white space. What happens in the white space? And I think what I'm hearing in the white space is what cannot be articulated, that when there are lines on the page, you see a block of prose, perhaps, or you see lines and the lines are like slats and the the slats are the places that you can see through and there something can be said. Oh, I can glimpse that. I can say that. I can engage with that. I know what's, I know what's happening. Um, and then there's this opaque place where I have limitations as a human being. I can't really know what a bee is sensing. I can begin to know. I can do that through research. I can think about, oh, you know, a bee has two compound eyes with 6,900 separate <laughs> lenses. What does that look like? You know, And I can begin to imagine that space, but I can't really fully articulate what that space is. And I think more and more I, I see that that's always true. That's true of human beings, too. We, th- we think we know what language is. We think we know um, how to articulate everything we're thinking, but we're only really grasping a truly small amount of that. And I'm, if if Paisley doesn't mind, and David doesn't mind, I might take a kind of sideways leap, which is um, Lev Vygotsky, the Russian psychologist, has this this great idea about inner speech, and that inner speech is really this ceaseless stream of ideas, emotions, perceptions. We're being bombarded all the time. We're constantly editing our perceptions because we would explode or implode if we could actually access all our perceptions at once. So we're constantly editing down, seeing 10% of what we could actually perceive. And that's happening with all our senses, and as that continues with that ceaseless stream, it's also um, it's also memory and imagination, and so we cannot access that. Um, as soon as we try to access it, we're slowing that down. We're, we're making it comprehensible in language. And that's what we're extracting and putting on the page, not that ceaseless stream, which is extraordinary and impossible to know. So that's part of the lyric poetry too, is saying there's so much more that is unsaid in that space. And I, and I guess in moving from... The voices that Paisley talks about, it's partly just carving that out more and more and saying, here's something suggestive. What does that stimulate in you, the reader? What's this conversation going on between us? Because the scritches on the page are just the scritches on the page, unless the reader also comes to that with a fully imaginative sensibility.
0: So as a sort of segue into talking more about poetry and syntax, and also maybe leaning a little more into the questions of the unsaid and returning to Lev Vygotsky's notion of inner speech in relationship to composing and editing, I was hoping you would read another passage from the very early pages in the book, Our main character, Aurelia, is a twin, but her twin dies in utero. And this part is a part that's narrated by her from within the womb.
2: In our womb, my sister's heartbeat gone faint and slow, then suddenly absent. Impossible to speak this grief, then or after. I heard the low ripple and hum of my father's voice, the unmistakable music of him entering our bodies. Cat cry, birdsong, the shades pulled down, the shades open. My mother's shallow breath, rush of blood and rain on the roof, the slow pulse of her, my fast flutter, insistent. Cruel, reminding her two cribs, two slings, two car seats. Terrible to see that relentless stack of diapers. She tried to stand, she crawled to the bathroom. In the fog of night, alone in this sealed room, windborne rain tearing leaves and petals, she wished me into decreation imagined us, my sister and me, weeks before, spectacularly fetal, days when we might have become any four-limbed creatures. Bats or birds, salamanders, turtles, white deer, white mice, two-glass frogs, veins and organs, gorgeously visible. And before this, fish untethered, swimming in the sea inside her, so small, fins instead of hands and feet, ever so quick, flickers of tails, slanted rays through barely open blinds, luminous dust, galaxies forming. My mother remembers everything alive with light, Walls and floor and dust, a pale hand moving through time, water in a glass, the glass shattering. If she lay very still, if she refused all words, if words lost all sense and became music, we too might be undone, my sister and I a cluster of cells resorbed in her, undividing.
0: We've been listening to Melanie Ray Tone read from her latest book, As If Fire Could Hide Us. Part of why I wanted you to read this is because of the trans-species aspect of it, but also because I wanted to talk more about poetry or to talk more about language and music. And you often bring up Fetal Development, when you do. First, I'm going to read something Daniel Green wrote at full stop in his review of your book, Silence and Song. Something that I think can speak for this new book as well. And then I'm going to juxtapose that with something you've said about your own work. So first, this is Daniel Green. Tone's prose is pervasively rhythmic, achieved through tonal modulation of both sentence length and sentence types, modulations that give the prose its kinetic quality. And then later he says, This free interplay of prose and verse also itself puts into question the very distinction between the two, between poetry and fiction. I do not believe that Tone wants to turn fiction into poetry, nor simply to write, quote-unquote, poetic fiction. Instead, she works to erase the boundaries altogether, leaving only the act of writing, which through its aesthetic ordering, whatever name we want to give it, can make us briefly aware of the potential consonants of existence. I really like thinking of your trans-species sensibility with this notion that you're trying also to eradicate genre boundaries too. And here are your own words about your writing that I think echo what you just read in your new book where the narrator hears the low ripple and hum of her father's voice from within the womb. So this is you speaking. My own writing grows more spare, more elliptical all the time. Closer, I hope, to the music of poetry. At 17 weeks, the ears of the human fetus are open, ready to receive exquisitely developed. We awaken in a water world, immersed in vibration and sound, the unceasing whoosh of blood through the uterine artery, our mother's heart and breath the surprising syncopation of our own miraculous heartbeat. We know the exaltation and pitch of voice, anger, fear, love, sorrow. Language to us is a polyphonic murmuration. In a different version of this that you wrote, but in the second person, you end it by saying, when your father and mother Walk through the park in early morning. You hear the sad, sweet burblings of doves, the roar of a train, the whoops of children. You care nothing for sense and signification. Everything you love is music. So thinking of this, I think of Nina, Nina Schuyler at Fiction Advocate quoting you as saying, when I'm imagining a story... I try to envision and enter a whole environment full of living beings, not made of human language. In fact, making sentences is extremely challenging for me. It's not how I understand or perceive the world. I go back to the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky, who talked about inner speech, which is beyond language. We are constantly experiencing a ceaseless stream of impressions and associations and imaginings. Initially, I'm letting everything spark simultaneously. So thinking of all of this, I'm, one, I'm wondering if we could spend a moment with inner speech beyond language and how you honor it while also writing sentences. So what is the process for you of composing and listening of fashioning inner speech into prose on the
2: page? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for that question. Just in that passage, that inner species part of it, that I go back to an impression, which was um, (laughs) my brother had a science fair project when he was about 12 years old, which would mean that I was about five and his project was the fetal development of chickens (laughs) Mm. so he was breaking an egg open through each day of development and what i realized as he was doing that experiment was my it was my darwinian moment where i i understood oh my gosh these these could be the fetuses of anything they could be chickens. They could be lizards. They could be human beings. They could be bats. And it's the same revelation that that Darwin had. And that's a lovely comparison, Melanie and Darwin, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a it's a memory that that comes without language. It's a it's a memory of. I, it's not a conscious thought that I was having. It was more an awareness and apprehension. So, um, I'm often trying to extract. How can I say what has just whooshed by in a in an impression? How can I slow my? Percent? It's always it's always false to represent inner speech, and so you, I'm always representing some small part of what I've understood in that. Um, I don't feel I'm answering this question very well, David. <laughs> well,
0: let me ask you about something you said about revising, because there's this mystery between wanting to honor. Uh, something beyond language, in language, right? So you've said, speaking about revising, I read a sentence again and again, 10, 20, 50 times, and the sound of the sentence comes to me in the rereading, and something else happens, something incredibly potent. I feel the sounds at the visceral level, in my bones vibrating, my stomach contracting. When I get the pacing right, I hear it externally and internally. Yes, I want the image to be exquisitely precise, but I also want the reader to absorb it at the level of the physical body. I'm curious about this process. Is this something you've always had an ear for or something that you learned, something that someone taught you? And if, the, if it's the latter, what was the learning process like of coming to this place of learning how to attune your ear to the sound of your sentences on a vibratory level.
2: No one taught me that unless it was something I absorbed via osmosis or maybe everyone taught me that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's true. No one taught me and everyone taught me that. And I think, um, you know, really that process of reading, rereading, altering words, trying to get the sound and the sense to come into accord somehow. I want, I want that perception to be absolutely right. Um, I want the sense to be right. I want the, the reader to be traveling with me at an intellectual level. But when I'm reading it aloud and um, over and over again, I really am feeling it in my physical body. And so if I'm not getting the rhythm right, if the music is off, um, I feel that. i you know, as as I've said, you know, in the in the stomach, in the bones, in the chest, in the in the way that my head is vibrating um, to that music, that there's something about that language that is pre verbal or beyond language that is communicating at a really physical level. And that I think that that, that's what happens out in the world, as well as in my own separate, well, I don't even think of of anything having a separate body. So we'll just scratch the separate body concept. But when I'm out in the world, the world is vibrating. And perceiving me and responding to me and I'm walking under the trees and the trees are sucking up my carbon dioxide, thank goodness and giving me back oxygen and that is all happening at a nonverbal vibratory level, not that it's always a vibration that I'm feeling but some sort of sensory perception that is outside of language. I don't have to be conscious of that gift of oxygen that I'm getting, Um, that it's just coming to me. So then how do I translate that into an experience that is verbal? Um, How do I say that? How do I find perspective from which to say that? Whose perspective is it, that shared enterprise?
0: Well, I wanna return again to Daniel Green's review of a pre- of your previous book, and, and hear your thoughts about something that he says. He says, "Decentering of plot is characteristic of all of Tone's fiction, and also the reader is made constantly aware that language, not story, is the irreducible medium of fiction. That what happened is only the beginning of the explorations a work of fiction might make." Tone is interested in the long reach of events, the mental after-images they leave, the attempt to reckon with their consequences. I wondered both what you think of that take, of your relationship to plot, and also if someone were to ask you what movement number one of your three-part love song um what it's about on the level of story. What would you say this first movement, Aurelia and Hiding, which is about two thirds of the book in length, is about?
2: I did write a description of it, (laughs) Um, you know, that talks about the plot. Plot is such a plotting word. It doesn't have the lightness of travel um, that I think of as as the travel through a story, but I, I always do have a sense of travel, and I always map out a very meticulous timeline, so I could give you a moment, well, not a moment by moment, but an hour by hour description of what's happening in a very linear way, but that's not how we experience time. That's not how we experience memory, that it's always swirling in and out of different time frames, different perspectives, different impressions of what has actually happened. Um, so those two are are somewhat in conversation with with each other that there's this is the trajectory. And, the, and that's more a word that I would use. This is the trajectory, um, not so much the plot. But the trajectory is this 12-year-old girl is left alone in her house. Her father's 227 miles exactly south doing a a salvage operation on a sailboat that's sunken off the coast of Oregon. Her mother's at work, her mother's at the lab, her mother's with her mice, you know, which she has to stay with during, during this time. She can't just stop the experiment she's doing and come home. She has to finish the experiment, make sure her mice are stable and okay. So, Aurelia's alone in her house and she just decides time for an adventure i i don't want to go to bed you know i i did the other thing you know i i ate my dinner um and now i'm going on an adventure and her neighbor's garage door is open and so she she takes the bike that, that that's there the mountain bike that's there and she sets off and bicycles under the bridge actually Um, to Seattle, to Pioneer Square. And once something is set in motion, the next and the next and the next and the next thing become inevitable. There's this Hopi idea that the, the Hopi, the indigenous people, this idea that things are manifested or manifesting. And so once something is set in motion, it's manifesting and there are choices made at every juncture along the way. And so one of the choices that Aurelia makes that she doesn't know what will become of this, but she chooses a particular truck um, because she can get into the bed of the truck under a tarp. And so that's the truck she chooses. And so then she's on to the next part of her adventure and things become ever more perilous along the way. So each choice makes a difference. So I want to
0: add one detail to your description of the scenario in, in the first movement of the book, not to talk about it now, but as a placeholder to return to. You mentioned the mother works with mice And I'm just going to add that she transfuses them with human plasma. And uh, it's something I want to return to and talk to you about later. But for now, I'd like to move to section two and talk about the qualities of your work that I think are even more essential in defining than what we've discussed so far. And this second section or this second movement is called The Seventh Man, which you've already talked a little bit about already you have an essay online called Blood on Fire, Notes on the Seventh Man, where you say, 40 years I've been contemplating this story, trying to tell it more than 20. And then later, through my decades of exploration, I've read dozens of books, thousands of pages in journals and newspapers. And then you provide this extensive list of sources, that were part of your 40-year contemplation of this piece, with books by everyone from Atul Gawande to Albert Camus, Brian Stevenson to Maggie Nelson. So introduce us to The Seventh Man, its distinct genesis for you, and why it has had a grip on you for so long.
2: I think the genesis was in 1976, I think I've got the year right on that, when Gary Gilmore murdered two men in Utah, and there had been a moratorium on the death penalty, and I thought I thought the, the death penalty was gone from the United States. And I was horrified when it became clear that Gary Gilmore was going to be executed. And part of that was just this weird thing. His, his name was the same as my brother, um, Gary. And my brother was nothing at all like Gary Gilmore. There wasn't any kind of resonance there. But it was just the name that made me take that leap to think, this is someone's brother, um, this isn't just you know, this isn't an isolated person who's done this awful thing. This is someone who has relationships and also this is someone who's been a child, you know, to think, if I think, if I make that leap to thinking of my brother, then I think of my brother as a child and then I start thinking of Gary Gilmore as a, as a child and um and that even now, when I say that, I've got, <laughs> I've got this kind of heart-clenching feeling uh, um, that that it has stayed with me. And then much, much later, like almost 20 years later, I read Shot in the Heart by Michael Gilmore which is in fact Gary Gilmore's brother and so that resonance came back and it was it, the genesis was you know 40 years before I composed the piece but then that desire to make something of it came when I read Shot in the Heart and and I think I'd been trying to write something short before that you know that that I really wanted to engage with the death penalty somehow. And I didn't know what point of view I would tell that from. You know, I thought a great deal about the family of the perpetrator, the family, the families of the victims. And then I heard witness to an execution, um, a piece that that's online. I hope it's still online um, and that people can access it. And that was from the point from multiple points of view of people who had witnessed some of them hundreds of executions. Some of them were journalists who had witnessed hundreds of executions. And I started thinking of it as a, as a poly vocal piece. I thought, oh, I'm going to write this from all these different perspectives, you know, in a, in a very postmodern kind of way. Um, I say postmodern in quotation marks, but, but then it, it all started to come to me in the voice of this one prison guard who's on the strap-down team. And part of that came from um, Lethal Theater by Dwight Conkergood, and, and I hope this is still online as well. But in that piece, he talks about the performance of the death penalty and I was so struck by that. And, and once again, my my body kind of clenches up when I think of it, that, that people actually practice to do the execution, to execute the execution. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of choreography that has to take place because the person who's being executed may respond all different ways. You know, they may they they can completely fall apart, or they can, you know, be coerced to take it like a man, walk like a man, you know, re- retain your dignity to the last moment. You know, that that language that's used to to make a a prisoner cooperate in his own or her own execution really startled me and made me think about execution in, a, in yet a different way, which was this performance. And what does it do to you to perform again and again, practice again and again, and then actually execute the execution? What happens to the people who participate in that? And then moving out from that to think about Who doesn't participate in that? Who is not involved? If if we are part of this United States where the death penalty is legal, are we not also participants in this process? So my vision of the piece kept exploding um, in my mind, and I wanted to include everything. And then finally it came to me, in the voice of this prison guard on the strap down team. But I hope that that possibility of it seeming polyvocal, because so many different perspectives are included, is somehow maintained in the telling of it.
0: Well, as you mentioned, the protagonist is on the strapdown down team. He's been involved in 131 executions. And this six-man team... Rehearses between executions to sort of hone the choreography of the team. As part of that, each member takes a turn playing the condemned, the "quote unquote" seventh man. So already, they each in a way imagine themselves as this condemned person, literally putting themselves in his place in this uh, in this practice space. But after witnessing a prolonged execution, one that takes almost two hours. The identification he begins to feel with all the men killed becomes more existential and uncanny and transformative rather than merely practical and performative, as if anyone could be this condemned man, his own father or best friend. Um, It's almost a mystical epiphany and I feel like this is the key to something at the core of your writing across books. And I wanted to spend time with a variety of aspects of this. First, I wanted to start with the types of characters you choose to portray. They are often not citizens in good standing. They are often homeless or addicts or thieves, people who have killed or might have killed. They might be victims of incest or perpetrators of it. They might be disastrous parents or terrible partners, or people on the outside for other reasons, from a disability like the deaf narrator of Sweethearts, or from racism and colonialism and cultural genocide. And perhaps some of these people are not unlike the people our protagonist in The Seventh Man is expected to kill. So before we talk about what relationship your work has to these characters and what relationship you put us in with regards to these characters, talk to us about why you are attracted to characters on the margins of normative society, both what attracts you to them personally I know you have a story, for instance, about your own life connected to the fictional boy in Sweethearts, but also philosophically, why and how you find these are stories that you want to center in your fictions.
2: I've been thinking about a language for that. And I, I would say I've had poetics of witness. And part of that began Really early for me, I was about 16, and a friend of mine stole the floodlights from a funeral home. And they ended up being worth more than $500. So it was a felony offense, even though he was a child. And his parents didn't want to have him living with them, didn't want to have him on a kind of probation with them. And so he got sent to a juvenile detention center on the other side of the state. And uh, when he returned, he obviously had been beaten or um, had beaten himself, perhaps, in in solitary confinement. I, I don't know what happened to him, but he came back brain damaged, severely brain damaged. Uh, and his parents still wouldn't take him in. And so he was the first homeless person I knew. And he lived over the gully from our house. And I saw him one day walking, and he he didn't speak anymore. And um I stopped. I was driving. I stopped the car, asked him if he needed a ride somewhere. And he got in the car with me, but he wouldn't sit in the front seat because he was ashamed of um, of his body, of his smell and of his condition. And I knew him as a boy. (laughs) I knew him as a, a person I loved and he came back in this way and i and i saw very explicitly how someone could be how someone could be cast out and what happened to someone who was cast out and so whenever i've encountered that since then i've always wondered what's the story behind this person this person didn't end up being you know on the margins of society by accident. Things happened and things happened in childhood and things happened um, because of certain kinds of laws, because of certain kinds of parents. So what's the story here? I want to find out what this story is.
0: Well, I think the power and intensity and uniqueness of your stories comes from the way you approach these characters. Ultimately, in a similar way, I think, to your protagonist in The Seventh Man, completely putting yourself in their shoes without judgment. So the stories paradoxically are always both very death-haunted and almost impossibly full of life. Sometimes this connects us to transpeciesism, a body still alive that will soon be... Dismantled by any number of creatures to become them. Sometimes it creates almost ecstatic moments, like when Louise and Sweethearts is bleeding out after she's been shot, and you dilate her final minutes into an entire world in a way that is, is really jaw dropping. But sometimes the way you bestow grace on everyone in your stories even when they themselves continue to perpetuate in real time the horrors that they do, is unsettling. And to be clear, it never feels like the stories are endorsing anything, but the world is also not judging either. If I imagine an omniscient creator of this world, it feels in a way like they are an observer of everything, no matter how heroic or monstrous, seeing everything one way or the other with understanding and with love. And I can't decide whether this is a world without morality or a world of the utmost morality, if this is a world infused with the divine or a material world where everything always ends up inevitably harming everything else as a matter of course. It often feels like both. Just as the man in the seventh man isn't only imagining every condemned man as every man he knows, he's also imagining every victim as his mother, his wife, and his child. So I wondered if you could speak into your world's in relation to good and evil, the moral and the immoral, in relation to justice, in relation to your own life philosophy in this regard?
2: Thank you for that question. And I'll see if I can answer by going in in different directions. So one of the things that I've thought about a lot is moral luck. And the way that moral luck works philosophically is you're driving a car, you're impaired in some way. Um, and, and this comes straight from the philosophical description of moral luck. This isn't my own invention. You're driving the car, you have taken drugs, or you're just tired, or you're drunk, or, and you get home safely. You don't know how you get home safely, but you you just get home and you go to sleep. Or you're driving the car in the same condition and you hit another car. People are injured, but not severely. And there are repercussions from that. And maybe you get a fine and, and maybe you even go to jail, depending on who you are. You know, that once again, moral luck is at play. Who are you? Can Are you from a certain class? Have you committed other crimes? You know, how are, what kind of repercussions do you face from that? You're driving the car, you hit a pedestrian, and the pedestrian is killed. There's a whole other cascade of repercussions that happen because of that. And it's all luck. You know, one time you get home safely and another time you kill someone. And it's just luck in that case. And yet the repercussions of it that you face in terms of society, and in terms of your own experience of that, you know, whatever kind of guilt you take from that, whatever kind of suffering you take from that, whatever kind of suffering you cause, um, it is luck. That seems astonishing to me, that, that all of that is in play every time, every time we're out in the world, every time we're every time we're out in the world at all, we can harm or be harmed, and we don't have control over all those circumstances. So there's that aspect of it for me that is about, you know, how that cascade starts to happen. And in the case of my friend who I was describing, that part of the misfortune of that was that his parents wouldn't take him back after he stole the floodlights And he ends up brain damaged and then homeless for the rest of his life. And my sister and I often talk about this, how lucky we are, you know, that that we didn't get caught for our crimes. It's not that we didn't commit crimes. It's that we didn't get caught for them. And if we had been caught, that we came from a certain kind of family that would have protected us, that we wouldn't have ended up in those circumstances so that's part of my vision as well in terms of in terms of judgment it's like why do some people suffer so much get blamed so much for their crimes and also why are they so unfortunate but i do also believe spiritually that everything has some part of the divine um and i i'm I'm guessing that's going to make some of some of our listeners uncomfortable to think about or but I really do have this sense that that there are holy sparks everywhere that Rabbi Luria was right you know, that that somehow everything is invested with the divine, that there's nothing that's separate from the divine. And that it's our our responsibility to restore that, to repair that, to see that. And and sometimes repair, repair isn't possible in the materialistic world, but repair as listening, repair as witnessing, repair as describing, repair as standing by while it happens, um, that that is an important gesture in the world.
0: Well, similar to the Hasidic epigraph from your book, Silence and Song, you often have epigraphs from spiritual mystics. In this book, you have an epigraph that is a Sufi prayer. The heart breaks and breaks until it breaks open, which reminds me of what you said at the very beginning about rapture and rupture. And I wonder if sometimes repair is through rupture. It's also a sentiment you echo when you were talking to Hannah Tinty about your story in her magazine, One Story. A story called Letters in the Snow, which is written as letters from the perspective of a thief. Letters of apology that feel almost like love letters to the people she's stolen from but that the people themselves who are being addressed likely won't read because this thief is lost in a snowstorm, and this could be really her last testimony before she dies of exposure. And you say in that interview, I think similar to the Sufi prayer, I'm hoping Nicole will teach me. I don't think we can experience mercy or believe in grace unless our hearts break open. That's what's happened to Nicole. And you, as you've already done today, also frequently mention the writings of the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. And I didn't know if anything came to mind. I mean, you, you reference some listeners today might not like this notion of the world infused with spirit. But beyond your epigraphs, I don't think you normally explicitly name it as such. I think you have enacted in the way you make ordinary things spark but is there anything new that comes to mind around spiritual teachings in relationship to world building for you
2: what comes to mind you know it's another instance of, of rupture and rapture my father had his first heart attack when in 1974 and Then in 1977, he had bypass surgery. He had four bypasses. And then in 1989, he had five more bypasses. So he had a second bypass surgery. And then he didn't cross over until 2001. But I think, you know, there. There was this constant awareness of, of death being very close, even though, you know, it started in 1974 and, and really even before that. But I was really fortunate in that we, meaning my siblings and, and mother and I, always thought that he would die, you know, and we wouldn't be there. And in fact, we were all there for the final 13 days of his of his life on earth and during that time i thought he was he was in the hospital we kept hoping we would be able to bring him home on hospice care but he's in the hospital and i kept thinking all we have to do today is come here and love and by here i meant you know to his room but then after he crossed over i thought What does that mean? What does it mean to come here and love? What does it mean to go into my classroom and love? What does it mean to go to the grocery store and love? What does it mean to go to the park and love? What does it mean to go to a faculty meeting (laughs) and love? (laughs) Um, Because I wanted to live that way you know that time with my father had really compelled me to articulate what it was i wanted in my life and i wanted to come here and love and that meant to the page as well um and i don't i don't think that that was necessarily a change in my work i, th- I think i've been doing that to some degree but i did it much much more consciously And then five months after my dad crossed over, I fractured my pelvis in three places. And I was delivered to extravagant pain. And it really kept me pressed down for a a long time. And I, you know, once again, I couldn't write during that time. Um, And I immersed myself in spiritual texts. I couldn't read anything else. I needed to find some and spiritual text from all different practices. Um, so not not just on one tilt. And I really did that to, to survive. And I tried to think of ways to bring that into the writing afterward, but as an infusion, not as a not in any kind of polemic way, not in any kind of preachy way because I didn't feel that was true to my vision at all. But but how is it that every, everything can become a spiritual text, not just ones that are overtly labeled that way?
0: Well, on the launch day for this book, Lance Olson posted on Facebook, As If Fire Could Hide Us argues both through its form and content That we all exist in mesh now, enmeshed in hurt, hope, grief, astonishment, and complex acceptance. That we always can and always should search for ways to tell ourselves and our worlds anew. Which made me think both of your quoting of an African proverb, I am because... You are, and you are because we are. And also what you discussed earlier of Thich Han from the heart of understanding of looking at a piece of paper and, and building the cosmos out or finding the cosmos in. Um, and as a preface to some more questions I have about finding the world or the universe within anything, I was hoping we could hear another passage. This, this is a passage from the first movement again, but it's an interesting and evocative passage in this regard.
2: Did I dream or remember hundreds of fish pulled from the water, pith through the brain or cut through the gills, bleeding? The deck slippery with blood, me falling, and later, slashing the throat of a cow, the cow blinking, moaning and gurgling, the black cow with a white face watching me saw off her legs, seeing herself open and beyond, learning to snip DNA altering the genomes of pigs, holding the babies, loving the quick flurry of them, elf ears pink inside, pink wet noses, pitting apricots, pitting cherries, feeding the pigs their favorite foods, grapes, snow peas, kale, spinach, cutting pears and apples from their cores, chopping cucumbers, offering strawberries from my own hands, helping them grow strong, keeping my marvelously reinvented pigs joyful long enough to stun their brains, put them under. Harvesting, beating hearts, Holding their hearts in my hands, holding pink lungs, long bowels, red kidneys, stitching their organs inside baboons, xeno transplantation, such a magical word, hoping one day to transplant the organs of pigs to the bodies of humans. Mother, If you feed the pureed body of one flatworm to another, the living worm remembers an electric shock delivered long ago to the one inside it. I do not forgive us for the mice we made part human. We love them, yes, but not enough. You injected ketamine or sodium pentabarbital. I held them. I wanted to feel their lives move beyond their bodies. Wanted to know them as they pass between one thing and another. I cradled our mice after you ever so skillfully performed as we say, cervical dislocation. What we mean is, I watched you apply quick, resolute pressure to the neck, separating the spinal cord from the brain. Approved, we say. Ethically acceptable. How many minutes does a cow, a fish, a flatworm, stay sensible to pain? How long can the body of a mouse receive love, language, scent, sorrow, cloud, nerve, murmuration, cosmos. Who knows where memory resides? My memory now leaks into the earth and air, flows as water flows seeps down deep through dirt, travels across miles of mycelium. My memory now becomes the forest.
0: Been listening to Melanie Ray Tone read from her latest book, As If Fire Could Hide Us. Part of why I wanted you to read this, returning us to the mother who transfuses mice with human plasma, who also seems to be facing a moral quandary about what she's doing as she's doing it, is for a whole bunch of reasons. One is medicine is something that reoccurs in your fiction in a general way, I think. I think of the hospital janitor in First Body who, when people are making fun of a 350-pound of a woman's corpse... And he's told he can just shove the body into a corner. He, he wants to treat her with dignity because, quote, nobody loved you or in the right way. And he's a laughingstock afterwards. But also m- much like this woman putting human blood into mice, organ donation between humans occurs again and again in y- your work, including in the third movement. Of this book called The Bodies of Birds, where a freshly dead girl killed in a crash who has donated her organs says, I surrendered all I knew, heart and lungs, discs of the vertebra, the dark secret of my spleen, unscarred skin, corneas, pancreas, the delicate bones of my ears, my impossible love, all I had to give. Kidneys, liver, veins, cartilage. I offered the gloriously pliable tissue of my thighs. A song moving through the spaces between cells. Consciousness, unstrung, bowels, unspooled, continuous, miraculous. The bodies I am tonight, uncontained by multitudes. Which connects to the child's body on the forest floor in Movement 1, who in a different way is offering her organs to the earth. Quote, Quiet as a stone, you lie, a body now for other beings, blooming out, blossoming into. Your hair lines their nests, your blood sustains them, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, iron. Your cells enter the mycorrhizal mind, giving up giving over, a child unborn, feeding stars, feeding microbes. But the mystery of bodies and identity, I think, is taken to its most extreme and mysterious. In Sweethearts, where a man with severe burns on his hand and arm has his hand sewn into his own chest because the doctors say, when burns are this bad, sometimes only your own body can heal you. And you also have something similar in your essay, Seven Reasons to Tell a Story in 2011, where there's a line, in a tent in a field hospital outside Baghdad, Jodi Badia's surgeon cuts a piece of bone from her skull so her swelling brain wouldn't kill her. Sewed so it inside my abdomen, she said, to keep the bone alive so nobody would lose it. It's not really a question. It's more of a curiosity about these strange self-healing surgeries and the desire to have a mother character also doing these interspecies transfusions.
2: First of all, those things that are all true and isn't medicine miraculous? <laughs> that's that's well, wild, yeah, a friend of mine, actually, my aunt, told me about a man who he'd been packing gunpowder, and there was an explosion, and he was very badly burned, and his child was killed during the explosion, and so there's kind of this double horror going on, but the hand was so badly burned that they literally did sew it inside of his body so that it could, so that it would heal. And... (laughs) I mean, I'd never heard of anything like that before, but in fact, skin transplantation is one of the more difficult things that skin is always rejected. You know, that there are multiple problems with organ transplantation, but with skin, if you transplant someone else's skin onto you, it may help it heal for a while, but that skin is eventually sloughed off. So the only way to heal really is to, if you're really badly burned, is to do this kind of radical intervention. Of course, you can't do it with all body parts, <laughs> you know, that, that 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 obviously wouldn't work. Um, and that became really a guiding idea for me And Sweethearts was, What does it mean to sew a hand inside a body, you know, in terms of in terms of the child in that story who ultimately commits murder, what would it mean for us to sew him back inside our family, our community? Our lives um, so that the idea that begins in a medical place has this larger philosophical implication. What does it mean to not just accept someone, but so him inside of us? Um, what was the other example? Um, the Iraqi. Oh, yeah. And that was true too. I saw that on 60 Minutes, this woman who, that because it's a field hospital and and there's all sorts of chaos going on, that they really don't want you to to lose that part of your body, you know, and also because that will keep the bone alive on that journey. Um, And so it literally was sewn inside of her both to keep it attached to her body so they wouldn't be separated, but also to keep that bone living long enough for it to go back in her skull.
0: I'd like to make a first step toward talking about how you teach writing. But first I want to take what Paisley describes as your act of great and radical empathy back into language and syntax. And back into your notion of these three parts of the book, being love songs and each section of the book as a movement rather than a chapter. I feel like on the level of story nothing is portrayed as ordinary in every day or perhaps like Thich Nhat Hanh, you look at any given thing and excavate until you find its extraordinariness but I also feel like nothing seems ordinary because of the language which remains at a high intensity throughout a given book of yours, as if you refuse each sentence being ordinary. To constellate this with some things you've said, in Sweethearts there are the lines, which I wondered if they were in Ars Poetica, that go, there's no safe place in this story. I don't want to be the mother of lost children. I don't want to be the boy raised in a cell or the sister who loves him. I don't want to be a good Samaritan, one of those kind strangers who tries to help us. And then the Eduardo Galliano epigraph to your collected stories, which goes, does the light descend from the sky or rise out of us? That instant of trapped light reveals to us what is unseen, what is seen but unnoticed. It shows us that Concealed within the pain of living and the tragedy of dying, there's a potent magic, a luminous mystery that redeems the human adventure in the world. And then in your essay, All Life is Love, which is partly about the death of your father, you quote Annie Dillard, who says, Assume you write for an audience consisting solely of terminal patients, That is, after all, the case. What could you say to a dying person that would not enrage by its triviality? And in that same essay, you say that surrender to love has become your life quest. Long ago on the Right Question podcast, the interviewer asks, if anyone has ever told you that reading your stories is like watching a disturbing movie through a glittery gossamer curtain, and you say that writing them is closer to rapture. And that is what the reading of them feels like to me, that every sentence is elevated and it creates this sense of exquisiteness that is often incantatory and beautiful, but sometimes almost unbearably painful in that meaning is everywhere always. And also, there's no place that's safe. You've said that love, not art, is the purpose. That witnessing and rendering and imagining stories for some is the path to that. And your Hasidic epigraph that put the at the highest level of mourning song makes me curious about how you take this unique approach to language. Do you teach others to write as love songs? Or, or do you teach differently because you're teaching to others? But if you were writing helping them write love songs, h- how do you begin to do that?
2: I hope so much that I might encourage, inspire, um love someone <laughs> <laughs> in writing love songs. And I think I I think, in fact, many of my students have taken that on, that maybe all of my students have taken that on. Wouldn't that be miraculous? But I created a series of experiments. I call them experiments. I'm I'm very insistent on this. I don't call them exercises. Exercises are like calisthenics or like something you do in, in the process of getting ready to do something else. So I call them experiments because experiments really are the thing. You're already on the path. And this comes from just a multitude of sources. But I finally created this huge monster in a box kind of uh, document that I uh, that I call memory and adventure. And I try to articulate in that, you know, the steps that I go through really or that i have gone through i don't go through them moment by moment step by step anymore when i'm working but i tried to go back through my own work and my own span of work and give others those possibilities so it starts out with three questions that actually come from anna devere smith and her one person plays and the interviews that she does with people And the three questions to break down syntax, and those three questions are, have you ever been close to death? Have you ever been accused of something you did not do? And what were the circumstances of your birth? and it's amazing what what possibilities can come out of that and i the questions got bigger and bigger and bigger for me so i add you know about 30 questions to to each aspect of that but then the other aspect of it is what moments of wonder have you experienced out there in the world the privacy of your of your home, in the darkness of your dreams, in the wonder of your dreams? What have you experienced that made you feel exhilarated? And then to move between those lists. Like, and, and I just have the students brainstorm and brainstorm and brainstorm, you know, and it only takes about 10 minutes in the classroom. And most people get stuck on, have you ever been close to death? You know, because I encourage them to think about that, not just have you been with someone you love while that person is crossing over, but have you witnessed the death of um, a beloved pet? Have you witnessed the death of a sorrow? Of a glacier, you know, in my lifetime, the glaciers in Glacier Park have died um, for the most part. Um, that's where I, I, I grew up very close to Glacier Park. Have you eaten a potato chip today? <laughs> you know? If so, a potato has died for you. You know, have you devoured <laughs> an egg? have you devoured an egg or a pork chop? You know, that that something has died. And people usually you know really go off on that and then for moments of wonder anything at all that has has been that has given you exhilaration and it might be something really small and it might be something profound but but anything that creates exhilaration and to bring those things together and then to start doing research on them and this is where I talk about rapture. Again, rapture comes into my language a lot. But the rapture of research and discovery, like every everything you imagine, everything you've experienced, you can do research about that thing. So I'm doing research on the Sowaro, right? And I'm finding out all these fascinating things about saguaros. But one of the things that I discover along the way is that saguaros um are often stolen when when they're about seven to ten years old they're they're just perfect for landscaping and so people go out and steal saguaros and then sell them to the landscaper so you have this perfect seven to ten year old saguaro in your you know in your new residential environment so they started putting microchips in saguaros, in the, out in the desert, so that they could be trapped. I mean, like who knew, right? Who knew? <laughs> so there's always something miraculous to be discovered.
0: Well, you shared with me your some of your teaching documents, including the one you just referenced, Memory and Adventure. And a lot of the exercises, I think most of the exercises involve mining one's own autobiography for experiences and details. And you've talked elsewhere about how memories, how they used to be thought of as wired into the brain in a a fixed and a static way, are actually destabilized when they're reactivated, that they're put into a flexible and vulnerable state. And you say, quote, in other words, every time you remember an episode of your life, you are reinventing it, embellishing, deleting, altering it through fusion and imagination. If you can't imagine, you can't remember. And I guess I've wondered, in the spirit of that, how you contextualize these exercises of autobiographical memory in relation to writing one's fictional stories. I know you aren't saying that they should simply be transposed from oneself into a fictional character, like the mother in in Aurelia and in hiding, putting human plasma into a mouse. So how do you take these exercises of biography into the world of the fully imagined? Or how do you teach that?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question, because I think that is a really essential part Of my practice. So once again, I want to go back to the Iona Moon experience that I had, which was that phenomenal revelation to me that my own memory and sensation and associations and impressions and dreams and speculations and perceptions were endless, 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 you know, webs of experience and understanding that that was possible for for anyone so with my students you know and until or with any with anyone I'm I'm thinking about writing with that experience unless you have that experience for yourself I think it's really hard to appreciate how miraculous every living being might be so I'm thinking first you have to go to the to your own experience and say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is endless. Once I start doing a brainstorming on have I ever been close to death, suddenly I'm writing a list of 100 things. Well, that's true for every single being, human and otherwise, but it's different for every single being. It's not my list taken into another person, you know, another quasi-fictional person. It's an entirely different list. Mm. And that's what's exciting to me, is to say, okay, I'm not writing about my experience, I'm writing out of my experience. And um, Anna DeVere Smith talks about that as the gap between. So I think of it as, you know, this, this holy space where something else can take place, where you can do that writing experiment okay now i'm going to do this writing experiment for someone i love so someone i know something about you know i'm going to do this writing experience for my brother and when i do that for him i know some things about him but there are also mysterious things about so i do that writing experience and then i do it for a stranger like someone i see someone who has something that, that makes me curious about them, some external feature that makes me curious about them. And I start imagining, okay, what's that person's list? And then I I do it for someone I'm afraid of, you know, someone who has scared me, someone who's threatening, someone who's dangerous, some, you know, certainly there are many dangerous (laughs) people as you've noticed in my, in my fiction, what's their list? It is this kind of movement further and further out of the self, but not starting in the self, but rather starting from what do I notice? What do I observe about that other being? And how can I then enter through that that pathway?
0: Well, one of my favorite details from your teaching notes is that you split your readings in class between readings of literature, readings of spiritual texts, and readings of science. And I think all three of these you can see great evidence of in in most of your writing. And you see how much you love to employ the different musics of these worlds, the different vocabularies of medicine or biology, or of religion and spirituality. And thinking of these three types of prose you teach and and returning to the three movements in the book and how each has a distinct origin and each movement being considerably shorter than the previous one, talk to us about the final 18-page section or movement, the bodies of birds, and tell us why you see these three separate movements with three distinct origin stories all arising at different times as pieces that should be juxtaposed and moved through like three movements within one piece of music rather than three stories in a story collection.
2: The Bodies of Birds comes out of The Seventh Man. In The Seventh Man, there's a moment, uh, and I don't know how many readers... Would notice this, but but Valen is the the prison guard, the member of the strap-down team is in his car. Another car passes in the lane next to him. And there's a family in that car, a father, a daughter, and a baby. And, and he's he's wondering, you know, oh my gosh, is the daughter a much younger wife? And he's, you know, he's hoping that it's a, a daughter. So he's thinking about. The relationships between those people and the family. And he starts to imagine or hear what the daughter has has heard um, in terms of music. And so they're they're passing. And then that's the car that's in the accident. And that's the girl who becomes the organ donor in the third movement. So there's this very direct relationship between movement two and movement three even though it takes an incredible kind of leap in terms of subject matter and focus and um focalization and detail but there are all these echoes going on as well so the the father in the bodies of birds works in a slaughterhouse and that is obviously echoing with the animal experimentation in Aurelian hiding and also in the slaughter of human beings, both in terms of murder and in terms of the death penalty, in terms of <laughs> legal homicide and illegal homicide. I think that there are many kinds of embedded echoes going on, and certainly medical questions and theater. And there's there's performance going on in all of them, too. And really, in my first concept of them being connected and in one piece, I was thinking of, of the performance aspect, which really gets downplayed in... Aurelia in Hiding. When I first conceived of that project, I was thinking of a a much more foregrounded aspect of the theatrical performances of what had happened to Aurelia, like (laughs) the TV movie or the journalistic report or the fictionalization. And and that became a, a, a much shorter part of aurelian hiding but that final section where the stories you read won't tell you this or you know the the people who talk about it aren't saying this and so there's that juxtaposition between what's performed and what really happened and in obviously we've talked about the theatrical aspects of the of the seventh man but in the bodies of birds There's the medical theater and what's happening on the on the surgical table and also what's happening in the ICU where the body is being kept alive. And there's a kind of theatricality to that as well of the of the way that the blood pressure has to be maintained and the oxygen has to be maintained, even though they're going to cut off life support, even though she's brain dead. There's a performance of keeping her alive. And there are other kinds of medical things going on in the performance of The Seventh Man. Part of the theatricality is making execution look like a medical procedure. It's just wild, like they, you know, wiping the arm with alcohol before the needle is put in, which is going to be an injection that kills the person. It's just madness, and also the harvesting of organs from the pigs in in Aurelia and hiding is comparable to the harvesting of organs from Anakavela in the in the bodies of birds. Mm. Um,
0: well let's go out with a final reading from the bodies of birds.
2: Let's do that. That sounds <laughs> <helpful>. <laughs> There are things you see but can't believe flames in the street. Flames whirling toward your house in the shape of a child. And a woman wearing a mask is stitching the cornea to your eye with sutures finer than the hair of a baby. You are wrapping the burning boy in a blanket, pulling the hose straight to spray the body with water. And a man dressed as a doctor is slipping bones in your ear, a kidney in your pelvis. You hear howling dogs, and you open your eyes in the dark to see what you don't see, birds falling from the sky, your burned hand, the scorched blanket. Sometimes you are afraid of the heart, The vagus nerve cut, the heart beating too fast always. Last summer, waiting for the heart, you almost died of a bee sting. In January, the flu. In March, pneumonia. Your lungs filled, your kidneys failed. You died and returned. Your swollen, failing heart fluttering inside you. And the woman wearing a mask whispers a needle into your vein. Shh. It's okay. We're okay. Almost home now. You are asleep and awake, fully conscious. Eyes closed, but able to see through closed eyelids. And a girl with long, dark hair is opening your body with the sharp blades of her hands. The one whose face you never dared imagine is singing her way through your bones, speaking your name to the dark as she sews the bodies of trembling birds into your trembling body.
0: Thank you so much, Melanie Raytone. It was a real pleasure to spend this time together.
2: Thank you, David. It's been great. And you are the most marvelous reader and the most amazing researcher. And I'm so grateful. I'm grateful
0: too. We've been talking today to Melanie Raytone the author most recently of As If Fire Could Hide Us. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Melanie contributes a reading of her craft talk, The Ethics of Perception. She has also offered two bundles of signed books from her back catalog to two new supporters of the show. These join many other possible gifts and rewards of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter, including rare collectibles from past guests, the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation which this time includes two of Melanie's teaching documents, ones she developed over many decades. You can find out more at patreon.com between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Oge in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Emre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Emre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.